Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, hey, everybody. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the managing director of Rudd Collection Napa Valley, Oscar Henquette. Oscar discovered his passion for the luxury hospitality industry at a very young age while working with his family's hotel business in the Netherlands. He's fluent in English, Dutch, French, and German. Oscar received a degree in hotel management from the Maastricht School of Hotel Management, which was founded by his grandfather. It was on a trip to New York City with his family in 1997 that set his future course. He was exhilarated by the city's energy and rhythm. He decided to relocate here. Uh, Oscar's first job in New York was Mitra Detage, team leader and private butler to Sir Elton John at the Five Star slash Five Diamond St. Regis, New York. And today he brings the same passion of hospitality to the Rudd portfolio of business. Welcome, Oscar. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for being here. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, that summed it up very nicely, very quickly. That was uh, you know, my last 25 years and three seconds. I, I like know. it. I mean, we could go now if you have some. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're actually going to unpack that. But before we get started, uh, what wines did you bring to, uh, what, what are we drinking this afternoon? All right. Well, I brought three of our uh, main wines from uh, from the uh, the properties that we have in Oakville and in, in Mount Veter. So okay. all Napa Valley wines. Um, we have two separate estates, one up on the mountain uh, for white wine varietals. Uh, on the west side of Oakville, all the way at the top of Mayakamas Mountain Range. And then we have two wines coming from the estate in Oakville. So that's the east side of Napa Valley. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So let's, uh, what, what, what do you want to pour me first? What, 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 what are you drinking first? Let's start with the white. Normally I finish with the white, but since. Yeah, wait, uh, you know, it's you know, a new studio. It's a new studio. I want to make sure we drink it at the right temperature. They do so. have an ice bucket for me here moving forward and stuff. So, but yeah, I, I, I've noticed that a lot of, um, not a lot, but I've come across a few high-end producers where they actually prefer to drink the white at the end. Yeah, I, I like it, especially if there's no food involved. I like to serve the uh, the tannins before the acidity. Mm. So what we'll do is we'll actually now, since we want to keep the temperature of the wine somewhat okay, we'll do the acidity before the tannins. So it's, it's the opposite of what I would normally do. But we'll give it a little break in between and we'll let our palate kind of cleanse itself and then hopefully move on to the tannic wines. But uh, the the white wine is is quite unique and I would say even exceptional. I remember tasting it for the first time when I joined the Rudd family uh, to manage their business. Um, and I tasted it and I thought, wow, this is not a typical Napa Valley white wine. And I very shortly after that discovered that the reason why is it's it's grown in a place where normally people grow Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh wow! So um, you know, business-wise, this m might not have been the best decision uh, of the family at the time because we can get you know five x the price for uh, yeah. Cabernet as for a Sauvignon Blanc. However, I think wine-wise, was an absolute brilliant decision uh, to plant this in the in the mid '90s to Sauvignon Blanc, Simeon, Sauvignon Gris. So you're talking about high elevation for Napa Valley, seventeen hundred feet elevation. 
which is fairly high. You're above the inversion layer, so cooler days, warmer nights than down below. Now these grape varietals retain their natural acidity. You've got a wine that has a tremendous backbone, uh, a wine that has great character, a lot of complexity, and you can age it for 20 to 25 years. Which so this is, is like a white Bordeaux. You, yeah. It is like a, like a high-end. Like, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and is it a... Is it like a classic blend? It, it, does it change every year? Sauvignon it, Blanc? It changes Simeon, slightly Sauvignon every Blanc. year, but it's uh, it's about 80% Sauvignon Blanc, 10% Simeon, 10% Sauvignon Gris. Uh, concrete egg fermentation, a little bit of uh, even terracotta, amphora, mm. and some used to new oak. So super long finish as you as you uh, tasted, and uh, it's a wine that keeps lingering for a long time. It really, to me, this wine transcends the grape varietal of Sauvignon Blanc. Mm. I actually think we shouldn't even call it the Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to be red, white wine. <laughs> Van, <laughs> Van Blanc. Mount Vito White. Yeah, Mount Vito White. Mount Vito oh. Blanc. Yeah, yeah Mount exactly. Vito Blanc. Oh, there we go. You can have that one yeah. for free. You're hired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you, podcasting doesn't pay the best, so. <laughs> I'm doing a little consulting. Well, there's always a job for you in Oakville. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. So um, I like to start at the beginning. So let's let's uh, sure. start where, you know, let's um, talk about where you're from. Well, I'm from the Netherlands. I was born in the the most southern part of the Netherlands, okay. uh, which is a country that is probably half of the country is underwater, as most people know. It's below sea level. However, the the part where I grew up and was born is the the most southern eastern part, which is a hilly part. It's almost uh, you know there's there's lots of hills everywhere. So beautiful, nice and green. But it's also uh, where uh, the Netherlands and Belgium and Germany come together. So growing up. I uh, had to speak different languages because literally at the other end of my street, they were speaking a different language. Wow. Uh, we even had three different wallets growing up because depending on what side of the street we were going to and buy an ice cream, we needed different currency. Oh, wow. Right? So, All right, so it's just pre this is before yeah. pre-euro. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm dating myself now. But, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> yep. <laughs> Those were the days. Um, yeah, so... Um, like, what's that like? So when you go to school, do you learn a language? Do you learn it because you have friends who uh, are, uh, are, are German or, or, or Belgian? Or? Yeah, a little bit of both. Uh, spending time in the, in the surrounding countries uh, and hearing that language often made you, you know, very quickly pick it up. And in school, they were paying a lot of attention to it. So you had these languages growing up, starting, you know, six, seven years old. You had language class in school and you had to read books in different languages and watch movies in different languages. So... I, you know, we're so lazy in America, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, yeah, I know. I, I mean, I, I mean, we, I keep pushing my own kids. It, like, come on, you got to speak another language. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and it, I, I just, I, I, and and I love meeting people like winemakers from here. And they're like, oh, maybe from France. You know, my English is not good. I'm like, your your English is as good or better than mine. My English, not even my French. <laughs> I know. You know, and so. Um, but you've got a beautiful country here, a very large country that you can drive through for days and weeks and yeah. months and, and discover new things, which we don't really have in Europe. Yeah. In Europe, you, you have to cross borders uh, yeah. uh, quickly. But I think it's a catch-22. I mean, I think that's also a beautiful thing. Like, you know, um, but America is big. It's, it's a big, big country. And, and, you know, you cross state lines sometimes because like, I go to different countries. So <laughs> I just flew here last two nights ago. You know, it was a, a six-hour flight from San Francisco. And yeah. it's, uh, you're flying over an entire continent. Yeah. It's pretty it's That's pretty, pretty Yeah. I never, it's so funny. It's, again, these things we take for granted uh, sometimes, you know. Right. Like, like 
I, you know, you're right. I was just out in California a few weeks ago. I just flew across. You fly over the Rocky Mountains. You fly flying over this whole, you fly over the Mississippi River, all this stuff. It's incredible. And you're in the air. It's pretty incredible. And how, yeah. So thanks for, for reminding me. I, I, I do love that uh, when people immigrate here, like they have a, a certain different appreciation for it than, mm -hmm. than a lot of us do. We just take for granted. So, um, so. Uh, small family. How many people in your family? How many? Do you have any siblings? I have one younger sister. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and then my parents, and uh, yeah, we grew up in a in a small, very old Roman city, in the city of Maastricht, which is one of the oldest city in the uh, in the Netherlands. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Built by the Romans. Wow. I love this. Um, and so your family though is you have a, you come from a family of hospitalitarians i just made that up hospitalitarians that's a new cool wow word. that, I'm and, gonna and, write and, that and it just flew out my mouth <laughs> i like it you're, so, I know. you're laughing at me too it's like wow. no that is a good one yeah hospitalitarians um i right. like it exactly yeah i think it's uh i guess it's in the blood as they say right yeah yeah <laughs> so your grandfather founded a school Actually, it was my great grandfather. Oh, great it started with my great grandfather, okay. who founded uh, the uh, hotel management school, uh, the only hotel management school in the Netherlands uh, at the time. Uh, after he had started his first hotel, yeah. And 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 uh, what? Uh, I mean, has it, the story been told? Why? Did, I mean, I, I don't want to assume, but why did he start a school? Was it just to, so he had? Excellent staff, I would have to assume, but like yeah, not just for his hotel, but he had a he had a broader vision. He wow. he, he uh, you know he purchased a hotel and, and turned it into acquired different you know uh, properties right next to it and expanded the hotel over years and and wanted to make sure that the that the whole city would flourish in terms of hospitality because he felt it was a very special city and uh, he didn't believe in true competition. He said, you know, I, we need more hotels in this town to attract more people yeah. to this town. Yeah. So uh, with that thinking uh, and with, for him, the art of hospitality, as it was for him, uh, he said, we need to make sure we educate people on this and how to run these businesses so we can grow this business altogether. And that's what made him found the school. I mean, even that, sounds like a philosophy of hospitality of service right like they keep uplifting the whole community right yeah i think it's important it's something that's i think we can get into it later but it's lost these days yeah in hospitality yeah yeah well because yeah, well, you, you we'll have a whole there. career we'll get there we got time <laughs> we got time we got wine <laughs> um so <clears throat> and just so i understand this did you go to university first or did you just go right to the school of management it's university level school, so okay, it's, uh, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. We uh, I did that right after. So it's like it's like basically it's like Cornell has a school hospital, right? So it's a Cornell. It's like Cornell University. Got correct. it. Okay. Exactly the same. Really cool. Super cool. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you graduate. Where did you go next? What was your first job? Well, during my uh, or did you do internship? Yeah, 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 during my time in school, we had to do an internship, and about halfway during the education, uh, they encourage you to go abroad. Okay. And uh, and learn about different. You could choose either. You know, not everybody in the school wanted to go. It was a business and hospitality school, so not everybody wanted to go into hospitality. Some people uh, wanted to go and pursue financial business or something else. But I chose the hospitality path, and and. Um, I wanted to have an experience abroad. I felt, you know, growing up in the Netherlands and, and a little, little bit in France, my parents spent a lot of time in France. I had a family there with hotels mm -hmm. as well. So I, I spent all my summers there and I felt like okay, I want to see more in the world. And I had spent three months in 
Israel with uh, one of my best friends at the time. His parents had a catering company and they made us work there uh, for a summer and we could stay at their apartment and basically have a great time, but work work super hard. So I enjoyed that meeting and seeing new people and meeting a whole new culture that was foreign to me. So I said to my school, uh, you know, I, I want to do my internship in South Africa. Oh, wow. uh, my parents had been there uh, for work once uh, a few times and and um, and uh, the the whole country appealed to me the beauty of it the people the history etc so i arranged for an internship in south africa uh, which unfortunately was canceled two weeks before the internship. Uh, at the time, they called it positive discrimination, meaning they wouldn't let any foreigners come in the country anymore, only give work to uh, the local people, which I wow. t- totally understand. Positive discrimination. It, yes, it wow. screwed up my uh, my uh, <laughs> my internship for sure, and I had a pretty cool internship lined up. So I was stranded in the Netherlands uh, and was not happy with it, and, uh, and uh, my school had no alternative. So I sat home for a week mm. and uh, and uh, the school put an alternative in front of me which was a, a local uh, company that ran uh, vacation homes etc which is uh, not at all what I wanted to do uh, so I said no to that and a week later uh, the school called me again I said we just had a phone call uh, coming from Chengdu China and I said okay uh, and they said well they need somebody right away you have 24 hours to decide if you want to go to Chengdu, China. I said, great, I'll call you back in 24 hours. And <laughs> I went to the store and I uh, bought a map. I had never heard of Chengdu, China. This is 1996. Uh, 19, yeah, 1996. And um, bought a map, came home, put the map on the middle of the table and during dinner and, and uh, said, so I got uh, <laughs> some news, guys. said, I have an opportunity to go to Chengdu, China. <laughs> Let's discover where that is. So we all looked at it, and everybody at the table was like, "Yeah, you should do this. this is a great opportunity. You know, jump on it." And you know, we got a couple of weeks to prepare. And I said, "Well, I gotta leave tomorrow. If I want to do this, I've got to leave tomorrow." And all of a sudden, everybody was quiet around the table. <laughs> and my mom processed the news, and she said, "You know what? It will be a great opportunity. You should you should go for it. We'll bring you to the airport." <laughs> Anyway, so I uh, before I knew it, I found myself on a plane. And at that time, it was three or four different planes. There were no direct flights. Mm. Um, and flying, uh, following the little, you know, uh, airplane on the screen in front of me, where we were going. Oh, yeah, I had no yeah. idea where we were going. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, ended up in Chengdu, China. Oh, my God. Which was incredible. Um, it was... It was actually, well, it wasn't incredible at first, I have to say. It was very, very tough. I had the toughest time in my life. I think I I met myself there every second of the day and Mm. was not happy with the situation. It was so foreign to me. It was so different. It was so, the scents were different. The people were different. The food was different. The language, none of it I could understand. Mm -hmm. None of it I had ever seen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was a, a tall white guy. Uh, six foot four, you know, walking around town and people looked at me as, a, as if I came from Mars. They tried to touch me. Yeah. So I've it, heard that. Like, like was, you're like an oddity. Yeah, yeah. It was a weird, weird, weird experience. And I, I quite frankly, I cried myself to sleep uh, the first couple of weeks. I, I couldn't I couldn't take it. Uh, I couldn't stand the food. It was very, very sick in the beginning. Um, and I called my mom on uh, Sundays. We had a, a, a time that we could call. It was very tough to call international from China at the time. It was all regulated and, and timed. Mm. So we had a one, one day a week where I could call my parents. 
And I kept crying on the phone. And my mom, after a couple of weeks, she said, all right, son, said, you got to stop this. Either you stop the whining, right? Flip the switch or you come home right away. So I kind of flipped the switch. I didn't expect my mom to say yeah, that. So moms I, get you right. I flipped the switch <laughs> and I had the time of my life for the rest of the year. So <laughs> that's my Chengdu story. That is, um, yeah. I mean, again, uh, as we sit here, 1996, you know, with the world, like China was definitely non gratis back then, you know, particularly the US. I don't know what the relationship with Europe uh, like was. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, living in the United States, yeah, we have such a melting pot to be, you know, like, yeah, there's probably, you never, I think, and you didn't have a, a Panda Express in your town. You didn't have a Chinese restaurant and all the different spices. Like, I, like, I, I, when you said, I'm like, wow. Like what a culture shock, and even even I've had friends even going to China from the United States, so it's not the same. Like you're right, it's it's all different colors, sounds, fashion, noises. I mean everything. Um, uh, and then like you said, being six foot four, white yeah, guy. Yeah, and the hardest part. Out. And I was open to learn about a new culture. That that's how I've always been, and and yep. that's what what I thrive on. Um, but when I landed, the first thing they did is they, they took me aside and, uh, and uh, I went there for the pre-opening of the first international hotel in Chengdu. So we were building a hotel okay. and I, I was a management trainee. Okay. Uh, the, the GM happened to be Dutch as well. He's the one who called to school and asked for wow. somebody to come. So um, I ended up in this in this town with, at the time, 8 million people, but nobody had ever heard of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Huge town uh, with no Westerners other than a handful of us. Uh, and uh, and I didn't know what to do. So um, it was the weirdest experience. They took me aside and they said, listen, we're happy you're here and we want your knowledge. However, these are the rules and regulations. You cannot do this. You cannot do that. You cannot speak about your life in the Western world. You're not allowed to communicate with oh, local right. people wow. and tell them how you live. Wow. That was a very, very tough thing for me to do because here I am, trying to absorb a new culture and, and how you and, do that's by sharing and trying to share mm -hmm. exactly be open and sharing mm -hmm. about what we do and and this was not allowed and and wow. at the, and at the time and still is a communist um run um country so everybody you never know who's spying on you you never know who's watching you so we were we were told this is the case be careful and don't say anything because we will know when you speak yeah that's i was when yeah. you said like um there was one day a week you could make phone call. I'm like, is this an internship or was this like, uh, sounds like you're in prison. Like, you know, you got to wait for the phone. You get, you got the weekly, you know, you could see it like that. But like I said, I flipped the switch after a few oh, weeks oh, and, no, I I, love I, it. and I became so open-minded and actually had one of the best times of my life. Yeah. So what was it like to, um, be a part of opening like a, a first hotel? Like, like this is, I'm, this is a big deal, actually. It was an incredible experience for me as a young guy. I was 21 years old. Uh, I turned 21 there. And, mm. um, you know, with such a different culture and such a huge hotel, it was a very prestigious hotel. Mm -hmm. It was going to be the hotel uh, of that city. Uh, and again, that city had 8 million people. Mm. <laughs> it's not, a, not just a small town. It was no. an eight. Um, but they started to build, you know, an airport and radar at the airport. Boeing came in and built radar at the airport. So they, they were anticipating a lot more international travel. It's the last big city before Lhasa, Tibet. So a lot of people oh. wanted to hop there, stay there, prep for their trip to Tibet. And um, so we had to build a, a super deluxe five-star hotel that was going to be the, the, the crown jewel of that town. 
Oh, amazing. And when I arrived, the hotel was not ready yet. It was still on the construction. And we had to hire 600 staff members to, to work in the hotel. And the way we did that, there was no shortage of labor. I mean, there were millions of people that wanted to work. Mm -hmm. uh, and people lined up. And basically, we made two lines uh, for the interview process. And mind you, I don't, I didn't speak any Mandarin. I still don't speak a lot of Mandarin. Um, and we uh, we lined them up in two lines. And uh, one line was people who could speak one or two words of English, and those words would probably be yes or no. Mm. And then the the other line would be people who didn't speak any English. And that's how we selected front of house and back of house. Yep. Then I my responsibility at the time was to take that line with the people that we hired from the yes and no line, the people that spoke two words of English. And teach them. We we rented an old school outside of town, and and every morning we bust all you know a couple hundred people to those schools, and we taught them English, basic English. Mm. Good afternoon, good evening, how are you? Welcome. The, the basic hospitality words and basic conversational words. So we did that for a, a couple of months in the beginning and started training them a little bit of hospitality because they had zero hospitality skills. Uh, then we opened the hotel. And we could finally practice with them in real life and fine-tune their skill set and, and over time, hopefully, uh, you know, turn them into great hospitality people. Wow. Wow. Super cool. And this is like you're 21 and you're doing 21 this. years old. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Man. Yeah. Um, so after you um, finished in China, um, you returned back to the Netherlands. Returned to the Netherlands. Yeah. And uh, finished my school, my education, got my degree and, and then uh, had to do another internship. At, once school was done, they, uh, they asked you to do another internship as a final uh, kind of final blessing. And mm -hmm. um, that one I could choose. Uh, and my parents had just taken me on a trip to New York City just before that during uh, Christmas and New Year's and it was you know magical time in New York City all the lights oh on, yeah people are outside everybody's happy singing cold but it was you know beautiful and and very cool and I got off the plane and I remember thinking wow I felt the energy entering my body I thought this city is incredible this is where I want to live I told my my uh, my parents at times that this is where I want to go eventually so a year later, I uh, I came back and I uh, came back for some interviews. I was invited at the Wall of Astoria for an interview uh, and uh, spent the weekend there. And the more I spent there, the more I unfortunately didn't like it. Uh, I thought it was a huge hotel. I had this vision of the Wall of Astoria growing up as a child, watching American movies. That's that's the place mm -hmm, to be in mm -hmm. the most prestigious hotel mm -hmm. in the in the world, and all the great presidents stayed there and and. But when I came there, I just felt like it was a, a factory with a thousand beds and uh, I didn't feel it had, to me, it was out of my character and mm -hmm. out of my, my, uh, my set of passion. So I walked around town uh, just on the one free day I had during the interviews and, uh, and discovered the St. Regis. I had heard about the St. Regis. I read about it and this super small boutique hotel, Crown Jewel on Fifth Avenue. And I basically walked in and went to the front desk and said, is there an HR department? Can I speak to them? And uh, the woman, the woman at the time was a Swedish woman. Uh, she brought me downstairs, and uh, she knocked on the door of HR. And I there I went. I gave them my resume. They allowed me an interview, and they said, "Do you have time?" I said, "Well, I'm leaving tomorrow night, but uh, back to Amsterdam. But I've got a little bit of time tomorrow." I said, "Can you come in and do a practice run with us?" Wow. And, and walk walk with uh, with one of our employees and spend a few hours so we can see how you interact. Like, absolutely, I'll do that. And I'll, from there, I'll go to JFK straight away. So I did. And then uh, I had a follow-up interview. And, and a couple of weeks later, I received a letter saying, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> 
first of all, there's so many things about that story that are, that are incredible. But like, even now, like, you actually had a paper resume. You didn't email it to him. No like, email. You know, it was back in the day, right? No like, email. No, no, no. I had a printed resume with my picture on it. Believe it or not, that's not even correct anymore yeah, these days. Yeah. But yes, like you were like it is an acting gig. Here's, yeah, here's my yeah. headshot. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and 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 the fact that um. And and they just looked at your resume and told you to come back. Like did like like obviously because you just walked in. Like you know, did you know uh, what did you get hired to do? That's what I'd say. Like you know. Well, no, I had when I walked in there when I was brought down to HR. I I had the opportunity to introduce myself and okay. do an interview. So they asked me what what I'm doing, where I'm from, um, and why I'm there. And I told them what happened to me and that I finished my education and I'm looking for an internship for for uh, six months mm-hmm. uh, at a minimum. And um, and uh, I wasn't pleased with what I saw at the Waldorf Astoria. It was not my kind that, of hotel. They, they, they probably liked that too. So though. maybe that that <laughs> exactly. was the line where they said, "Okay, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, maybe we'll scoop we can you work, work with yeah. this one." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! All right, and so um, when did you come back to New York City? So I came back uh, in. Uh, I finally moved to New York City and came back in February of 1998. Okay. Uh, yeah. Very very cold. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I literally the, the good old fashioned boring story, but I arrived at JFK with two suitcases in my hand, and that was it. That's all I had, and uh, and uh, I spent the two nights in the uh, some airport hotel because I didn't know anybody, and and uh, oh. I think it was a weekend, so HR department was closed in the hotel, and then. By Monday, I went back to the hotel and and uh, uh, you know did all my paperwork there and and I, through somebody else I knew through the school I had heard that uh, Astoria Queens was pretty cool to live there and yep. easy access to Midtown and so I went hopped on the N train at the time and um, and went to Astoria Queens and walked around and, and walked into some realtors' office and some they were renting some apartments I saw some things on on. Uh, uh, in the front window and it was a Greek family and, and we kind of hit it off right away and they showed us an apartment at the time and uh, I had two other guys that came from the Netherlands and we, we rented a three-bedroom apartment. You know, it was 1500 bucks at the time. Oh my God. All, all, I know, all three fi- of us. I know, 500 bucks. Yeah, 500 bucks. And like, it's so quick. Like you said, that's amazing. But now we had an apartment but no furniture. Nothing. <laughs> zero. I had a suitcase to sleep in, right? So... <laughs> So the first thing we did is we bought a bed, uh, each bought a bed and each in the bedrooms and that was it. And then one of our parents, I don't, uh, I don't remember who of the parents did it, but one of the parents sent us a, uh, an inflatable couch oh, okay. via mail, right? Yeah. So, so a couple of weeks into it, we, uh, we uh, received a, a couch that we could inflate and, uh, and sit on in the living room that was empty otherwise. <laughs> and little by little, every time we had a paycheck, you know, we, we bought a little bit, we bought a TV and a toaster and mm-hmm. a, I don't know, a chair and, and little by little, we furnished the apartment. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what um, were some of your duties uh, when you started at the Regis? So I was hired as a maître d'étage, as you uh, announced. The little the bit of French. The little bit of French. I, the maître there's d'étage. Some, there's some words I can nail. So basically what that means is you're the, you're the director of one floor in the um, in the hotel. So okay. the hotel had, um, let's call it uh, 14 floors. I don't remember. Um, no more, 18 or 20 floors. And uh, you're basically directing one of the, you have your mini hotel within the hotel. Mm. So you're the host, you're the uh, the manager of one floor, meaning 20, about 20 rooms. 
Um, that means uh, making sure that they're maintained properly. You're, you're guiding the room attendants, uh, making sure uh, cleanliness is up to par, making sure the maintenance is there. You direct the maintenance guys and make sure that, you know, light bulbs are whatnot, the shampoo, the carpet, et cetera, et cetera. And then you prep the rooms for guest arrival. Then you, you welcome your guests as they arrive on your floor and you become their, their personal uh, uh, person of contact for the, for the for Concierge, the butler. Anything. anything from, want, yeah. From, yeah. from the time it was from polishing shoes to, to picking up their laundry to arranging a, a private plane to uh, <laughs> creating a, an event in the room, whatever it was, anything, right? So... Uh, pretty cool job. Yeah. Um, so, so again, this is like '97. This is like pre-internet boom, pre-Yelp, and all these reviews and yep. and all these you know uh, hotels that and you, you start for for me because and also from a ton of listeners. What uh, is a five-star hotel like? I mean, I'm just getting a sense. Like, there's a I didn't know there was a manager of a whole like you're. I mean, like like where did these uh, these are ratings from like. Um, professionals let's say versus like the internet we're like i yeah yeah these this was a legitimate <laughs> right. like top luxury five-star yeah. hotel and and mind you this was the only st regis in the world the original built in 1903 now st regis has become a chain of course now luxury luxury has become a more of a, a common thing to most people i guess but at the time this was a, a a pure pure luxurious property that the four seasons the peninsula those were probably the top three mm -hmm. uh, hotels in in the city at the time uh, if people had the means to stay there and and, and spend i think the cheapest room at the time was already a thousand dollars right i'm night. saying i was gonna ask you what was it what was like a, a, the rate back then a thousand dollars a night that's where it started and yeah. presidential suite I, I i don't remember exactly but it was somewhere in the 15 or twenty thousand dollar range for one night yeah and that, and for dating ourselves i'm older than, than than oscar is but like so again this is pre this is as the the dot-com bubble is coming up so like this is like real money like like this is like before things accelerated because of that big period of wealth on wall street like that's some serious change <laughs> exactly and we had people stay there sometimes for a week sometimes for a month we had people live in the hotel we had three or four rooms that were permanently rented by a, a family or by a person yeah 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 um so during your time there i guess uh sir elton john stayed on your floor or how did, how did you how did you come to work with uh so uh, yes uh, sir alan john i met in my very first week of work and wow. my here's this little kid from the netherlands I know, like, this is right so in a town you know tucked away between two other countries has never seen a celebrity in his life <laughs> uh and um met him and he he was the kindest person at the time i was training with somebody else at the time and he introduced me to sir alan and and um Elton liked me right away, and he said, well, "Do you have time? Can can I sit down with you and talk?" And we had a you know a two hour conversation, wow. uh, which was purely a conversation about where are you from, what have you done, what's your. And I had just spent you know a year in China, and he was very intrigued by what I had done and and uh, where I came from. So we uh, we became very quick friends, I would say. I would call it friends now. And, and um, he requested I be his butler anytime he came to New York. And, and from there on, we, you know, we created a relationship like that. So it was pretty, very special. Yeah. That, that's <clears throat> going back to like, like you said, I arrived, you know, it's, it, 
it's that tired story. You ride with two suitcases, but then like, like within your first, you, you like meet Elton John. He sits with you for two hours. Right. <laughs> it's pretty... It was a remarkable experience and, and I'm thankful to him for the rest of my life for what he's, he's shown me and, and what, how he supported me and, and, uh, for the world that he's opened for me. For yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so how long did you stay at the St. Regis? I stayed at the St. Regis for, must have been about three years. Uh, then I moved on to the Four Seasons at the other luxury hotel in town. Uh, and they were kind of opposite from one another, those hotels. They were, at the time, somewhat of uh, rivals, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, St. Regis was known as the classic uh, old school money uh, hotel. Uh, and then the Four Seasons was more seen as the new, the entertainment money, the Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, the flash, the glitz and glamour, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I, I went to the competition, if you will, at the time uh, to uh, manage uh, food and beverage there. And um, it was a whole different experience, a very, very different clientele. But, you know, I think my time at the St. Regis prepped me for for that for sure, especially dealing with uh, difficult People that say that the high demand, Are you demanding, that, um, demanding people, celebrities and and some wealthy people can be uh, very sometimes, demanding sometimes, not, not yeah, all, no, yeah. but, but I'm, they not, can not be play. very demanding. Yeah. Yes, I mean I think, yeah, if you're used to getting what you want, you're used to getting what you want. Just get what you want. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> um, we don't take no for an answer. Right. <laughs> but I also I think you know. Um, you said earlier, and I don't know if we want to get this now, but like luxury and hospitality, like the we're going to take care of the guest. We'll take care of the guest and the guest, you know, luxury has always been to me presented as something that is rare, something that n is not for everyone. Uh, and this wine is, is not for everyone, but it is really delicious. It is. I can see that you're going. I'm on going for a little bit more. I like it. Uh, <laughs> Very aromatic. No, with only three hundred cases made, uh, this is it, this is truly rare, and it's a therefore it's a luxury. Yeah. Uh, it's handcrafted. It's hand grown. We spend ten months out of the year growing this wine first. Uh, then we it takes another you know nine months in in the, in the barrels and in the concrete eggs and and the amphora to ferment and age and 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 kind of you know add character to the wine and then we bottle it and then we wait still a little bit longer before we release the wine to and this is for a white uh our, our red wines it will take four to five years before we release those wines so with only 300 bottles made sorry not bottles uh cases made um this is a luxury for me every year i look forward to the release of this wine because it's something that reminds me of of the my past and growing up in europe and growing up with very seasonal uh food and seasonal wine drinking if you will and by the way wine was part of the table when i was you know yeah, a teenager talk, yeah. younger than a teenager even um but we, we we ate very seasonally because there were no big supermarkets there were no there was no genetically manipulated food there was just whatever the farm brought mm -hmm. you that's what you would eat right? right so i remember vividly as a child a strawberry was a luxury mm -hmm. a, a a, a true strawberry and i still have not found one since then that tastes the same as a strawberry from my childhood because we had it once a year in august that was the only month that we could harvest strawberries and not every farmer had strawberries so that was a luxury for us to have strawberries and i 
I mean, anybody in town would look forward to it, to that time with maybe a little bit of vanilla ice cream or some whipped cream and mm -hmm. fresh strawberries, right? So then I moved to New York City and I walked on, I don't know, it was Madison or, or, or Fifth Avenue and I walk around the corner on that little corner deli, uh, it's February 1998 and I see strawberries sitting on ice. I thought, what is this bizarre? From, I've never from, seen they're that. They're from like Chile or something. Yeah, I've Latin never America. seen yeah. that before. So I bought, a, I bought a little pack of strawberries and I, looking forward to it, and I had them at home and it was the biggest disappointment. Yeah, in my so life. I'm they, sure to you, it was so flavorless. They didn't taste Don't, like anything. Yeah, yeah. What a disappointment. Yeah. So, no. I'm not a fan of the all year round uh, availability of, of those kind of things. And isn't it interesting <clears throat> that um, now we make a big deal, well, in the United States, we make a big deal. Well, you've been here so long. We make a big deal about farm to table, but that's how just you lived growing up in Europe where you lived. Right. There wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the term back then. It was yeah. Just like, yeah. Like, now is, it's like we, we, the chef does a seasonal menu, right? Like, instead, like. This is how you eat. And, and, and this is also still actually how we drank. And people always ask me, what's your favorite wine? And I always have a, I still, after all these years, I have a hard time uh, um, answering that question because we didn't just drink one wine growing up. We, we drank very seasonally. The way our parents would cook or our grandparents would cook was with the seasons. So the food changed per season, and therefore your wine changed because not all wine went well. We'd never, we wow. would never. Wow, talk about talk about food and wine pairings. Like we would never drink Cabernet Sauvignon in the summer. Never. It would be something for the reserve for the winter months. As your your cuisine is changing, as you're eating more stews and richer food and and steaks and whatnot or, or meat, um, we would never think about drinking it in the summer. So you know we would drink rosé wines back then, you know 30 years ago 40 years ago wait wait, wait rosé rosé it's not it didn't just happen like five years ago <laughs> i guess here it just when, happened when, when, but not, not when, <laughs> when that blog came out with the soccer mom you mean rose people have been drinking rosés for throughout antiquity uh, i think so <laughs> <laughs> i guess it was wise infidel before here right? well yeah we have lights in here um so yeah i mean I, I it's so funny i didn't even think about that um your family being in hospitality um what did your parents what did your parents do i was just curious I... my parents uh my father was a doctor and, okay and uh, my mom had a, a fashion business a fashion store uh very she cool so a little bit of an interior designer but she she grew up in my she was born in my grandparents hotel uh and uh and they later my my parents got divorced uh and then my mom and her new husband started a small hotel in the south of france oh, wow. they moved to the south of france so where my aunt lived who had a hotel there so my whole family is built okay. around hotels and, and hospitality yeah. my, my my father's uh brother was a had a michelin star restaurant you know 40 years ago and i would spend summers and weekends in his kitchen literally peeling potatoes and carrots and whatnot until i was you know had blue thumbs basically of doing it that's that, those are my first interactions with food wow my father used to every saturday used to drag me along and, and do shopping for the week and we would go from farmer to farmer you know you couldn't just buy apples everywhere you had to go to the apple farmer to buy apples mm. and then there was another farmer who had nuts and this and that and there was another farmer who uh, or, or then we had the little shops that would sell bread little shops that would sell meat a butch a real butcher shop you know and big big supermarkets they came later on but it wasn't that wasn't the case in the beginning so i i, I was taught from the beginning it's okay everything you buy you touch and you feel and if you want to buy a tomato and you touch it, you smell it, you feel it, and that's you pick the one that you think is right. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, that's, <laughs> those are yeah, those are maybe foreign things for not, yeah, not exactly. Here, but, yeah. but that was how we grew up. It was it's part of the the DNA. Yeah, um, that's I love that. I mean, 
I think about growing up with my mom and, you know, um, we, we had supermarkets, we had ShopRite and, you know, and like, I didn't have fresh vegetables. We rarely had fresh vegetables. You bought canned. We didn't even buy, my mom didn't even buy frozen. Like people were buying canned vegetables here, you know, you know, um, uh, wow. And, And, you know, and, uh, like we like we have apples or oranges and bananas, no exotic fruits. I used to grow strawberries, but like no no exotic fruits. Like <laughs> all the fruits in the world, we had apples, oranges, and bananas, pretty much. <laughs> um, that's so cool, man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it it is it's clearly like um the, the, this it's really you know food wine it's all in your blood this whole hospitality yeah yeah um, I think so yeah. yeah so what we were talking about we we're talking about luxury and and, and I I had to have some more of the wine um but you were saying luxury to you is something that is all that is it is um there is a certain scarcity element to luxury I think you were I think so, yeah. I think it's uh. You know, we call these, I'm going to relate it back to my industry, the hotel and the mm-hmm. restaurant business. Uh, you know, we call all these great hotel chains, the Ritz-Carlton's of the world now in the Four Seasons, they're all luxury mm-hmm. hotel chains. But I, I almost don't want to use that word anymore and, and because you've been to one, you've seen them all. And it's it's almost like luxury for the masses. And I think there's a mm-hmm. true uh, opportunity in, in, in some of these breakaway brands uh, like Amman and, and, and other resorts that really do it very very well and very very scarce and it's it's uh yes i know it's very expensive and it's not for everyone um but um that is always what luxury has been yeah it's never been for the masses right so um and and everybody can find their own luxury in their own category yeah like i said a strawberry you know people yeah. laugh at me when i come come back with the strawberry but that was a luxury and it's not uber expensive but it was rare you know everybody could get it so that's what i mean with the word luxury does that yeah. make sense to you no tap absolutely yeah. i mean i think um that is uh well said like luxury there's levels to it but there there is a level that just um just a level that requires a certain amount of wealth. <laughs> it, it does. You know, it and does. Just being, I'm just and, keeping it 100, everybody, you know? And that's why, you know, growing up, we didn't go to restaurants every day or ev- not even every week, not even once a month. You know, it was something that was a special occasion. Mm-hmm. When I moved to the United States, and that's the difference, I think, in, in terms of, of eating out in between Europe and although all of that is shifting now. The world is becoming one big, you know, all of the same. But yeah. Um, in Europe, it was more people would eat out at a restaurant because there was something to celebrate. It was an occasion, and yep. it was a festivity. It was yep. a, it was an experience, yep. right? And and by the way, you would go there at six o'clock at night, but you wouldn't leave until midnight. Mm-hmm. It was one. They're not seating. trying to turn over They're the not, tables. No. So when I came to the U.S., I was shocked. Well, people eat here just to eat, right? Uh, you know, I don't feel like cooking. Do a quick pre-theater. What does that yeah, mean, yeah. right? <laughs> well, in and out for to a two or three Michelin star restaurant, just in and out within half, uh, an hour and a half. Yeah. And that was foreign to me. That concept. <laughs> no, <laughs> it still is. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, even yeah, it's it's turning tables. Mm-hmm. Got two seatings or whatever. Sometimes three seatings. I, and and to your point about like hospitality, there's a place in my town that I used to go to. I won't name them. I won't put them on blast. But they're BYO, um, and they make their own pasta. And, and and like it was never as good as the first time I went there. But then during the pandemic, you know, everything changed. And when things started opening back up, uh, we went in with a friend of mine. She's a sales rep. And this is where you know if you're serving it. Like you, if you saw the wines on our table, you'd have gave us better service. But literally, it came a point where they were like. Uh, you have to leave in 10 minutes. We have to turn it like the, I've never been told 
I have to turn a table. And I've worked in wrestling. I've never been told, you, you, like, well, you have 10 more minutes. I was like, we're never going back there. And we haven't been back. I can imagine. I wouldn't go back yeah, either. Yeah. No. Um, One of my best restaurant experiences today, to date, is still in, in Rome, Italy, uh, where I went uh, with a group of people and... Um, it was not expensive at all. Mm -hmm. And it was this old school restaurant uh, in the corner of a, of a square. I don't remember exactly what it was called, but uh, it was run by a couple. And he, he was, he must have been 75, 80. She was probably even older. She was cooking. She was in the kitchen. She was probably 85 years old. One menu, you couldn't choose anything. You could definitely not say, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. Can I have this but without that? No, it was, this is what we're cooking tonight. Yeah, exactly, this is, what right? the, this is the menu. This, you're going to eat this or you're going to hit the road? Um, and we were a table of five, and I happened to sit uh, on the banquette at the end of the table. And uh, the tradition there for them was that they, they would serve the, the, the course, uh, four plates. And then the last person, which happened to be me because of my position at the table, got uh, the leftovers in the pot or the pan that it was cooked in, right? So it was a, a truly a shared experience. That, to me, was a luxurious experience, and mm -hmm. it was not expensive at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. I yeah. love it. I love it. So um, you go from being a maitre d'etage to food and beverage director. What was that like? When you go over to uh, um, Four, Four seasons. seasons, was definitely more, uh, I would say, corporate. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, at the time, St. Regis wasn't part of, uh, of uh, Marriott yet. And now it's part of the Marriott Group. But at the time, well, initially when I just started, it was, it was uh, ITT Sheraton. Then it was bought by Starwood and then moved hands to Marriott. Um, Four Seasons was a, a well-equipped hotel company with several uh, different uh, hotels already founded in Canada and Toronto. Uh, so they had a great program for young managers like myself. And uh, they would, they would what they call a high potential employee, they would fast track those mm -hmm. people and, and, and really guide them in terms of management. How do you manage people? How do you deal with the unions? How do you, uh, in time management, all these, you get all these different classes every day of the week, which is pretty exciting. It was almost like going to school again mm -hmm. while you're working. Mm -hmm. uh, so very well-oiled machine, uh, fascinating for me and a great way for me to learn uh, really a lot of, about the, do, doing business in New York City. Yeah, and dealing with unions in particular, because <laughs> all the all the yeah, I was gonna say yeah, yeah, now, it's so, yeah. all union here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? I think it's a good time to take a, a quick break, and we'll be back. We'll be back with more Oscar Henkett, Everybody, uh, we'll see you in a few seconds. Okay, we are back, um, and. Uh, you saying how you're learning how to deal with unions in the business side. Um, what? Uh, how long did you stay with Four Seasons Corporation? That, that, that I stayed thing? there for about two and a half, three years, um, and this was it was a tough two and a half, three years for sure. I had to run departments there uh, with 50, 60 plus employee, employees that had been there for a long time mm. and that had seen many managers, young young guys like me come and go, mm -hmm. right? So I was number 125 on the list or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So um, they probably thought, here's another guy who's going to teach us what to do. And, yeah, and then yeah, a you year know. later, he's going to move out mm -hmm. and, you know. So <laughs> uh, I definitely had all of that resistance in the, in the beginning, but I, I very quickly showed him that I was not just talk. Um, you know, growing up in, in my family's hotels, it was, it was, you know, I was doing dishes when I was nine years old, mm. literally as a young kid, and then washing cars and checking people in and, and cleaning rooms, and I did all of it. So I wasn't just gonna teach them 
what to do, but I was going to, my, my goal there was to really try to, for people to become more efficient because I knew I was not able to help them in a way that I could take their jobs away because that was the biggest fear of somebody who has a union position yep. is yep. like, you can't do what I do. Well, I'm not here to do what you do. I'm here to work alongside of you to guide the process and see if we can streamline it to make your life easier, right? So once I gained confidence from people and once I showed them a couple of tricks to to not cut corners, but do things more efficiently mm -hmm. and therefore use their time more mm -hmm. wisely mm -hmm. and become, in our opinion, a more productive employee, mm -hmm. that's when I gained trust from them and, and I became more of a part of the team, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I ended up becoming the first young manager there at the Four Seasons not to end up in human resources for an entire year. So <laughs> I was proud of that title. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of like get, you got that street cred from the union guys. You're okay, exactly. kid. Yeah, He's okay. We're not going to drag him into the human resources office and, uh, and uh, you know, tell Call him to leave. Rep, exactly. Right? Uh, yeah, no, no. I had seen that happen to many people around me and I said, this is it's not going to happen to me. I'll do anything I can to it. But that's a very humbling experience, right? Yeah. As a young person that was also the time when when september 11 happened in, in the city so it was we went from an, an ultimate high to an ultimate low overnight um so that was a that was a tough experience to uh to um to deal with but it it, it you know it opened my eyes to many things and i i uh, that's how i actually connected with my next job and and uh, I started volunteering in Ground Zero to uh, to cook meals for rescue workers there, and in my free time, and uh, I met uh, David Boulet, who's a, a great chef uh, here in the city, and and uh, he closed down his whole restaurant to cook meals there, and and uh, and after September 11 was kind of dealt with, if you will, um, he asked me to come on board and help him reopen his restaurant. Yeah, what had you um, as a you know, at this point, you're just, you know, you're just here on a work visa. What had you go volunteer at? What, 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 what inspired you to go do that? What moved you to do that? Well, I couldn't believe what had happened. Uh, I think nobody could believe what, what had happened there. And um, it was something that was so close to where we all were uh, being in the city and seeing what happened in the city right after that seeing people come together mm -hmm. we always talk about that now when events happen but i think i've never seen it like september 11 how people come together yeah and and how there was such a camaraderie and and a willingness and a power and a, and a, a unbelievable motivation to get over this very quickly mm -hmm. right that i can't i mean i'm getting goosebumps while i'm talking to you now i, I can't describe that feeling mm -hmm. I just it, it hit me and I thought, wow, this is special. This for a nation, for a town, for a city to mm -hmm. come together this way and not let this get to us is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, I, I want to do what I, what I had no money, nothing. I couldn't help in a certain way. I yep. didn't have extra rooms to put people up, and you know. And and so I said, what can I do? I can help volunteer and make a meal for somebody. I can do that for sure. And you know, that's what I did. Awesome, amazing. Um, thanks for doing that. No, I mean, uh, that's just amazing. So, and then, I mean, and, and this is, I think when you are genuinely, um, giving of yourself, things happen. So like you said, you met David and then you went to work. So was that a new, as a restaurant manager, that's different from what you'd ever done before. Correct. 
No, it was and it was in parallel to okay. to obviously my position uh, as a food and beverage manager yep. at the at the Four Seasons. Uh, so I knew a thing or two about restaurants mm-hmm. for sure. But I to me it was really a, a, a big shift. You know, after six years of working for big and the two top hotels in the city, mm-hmm. but big big organizations, I was just. A number, uh, if you will, right? A, a manager who they had seen many times come and go. And uh, I thought, okay, well, I've learned a lot after these six years. I, I want to see how a business is run in the city when it's independently owned, okay. not by a big company. Mm-hmm, so there's mm-hmm. no big money behind it, no structure behind mm-hmm. it. And, and David Boulay definitely had no structure. So he he asked me to come on board to kind of structure his company and structure his his operation. Um. And uh, it was you helped guide him to like a number of uh, four star reviews from the New York Times. Well, he were. I mean, I didn't. He was the chef. He's. The, <laughs> I take no credit for anything there, other than the fact that uh, I, I did help him behind the scenes and uh, in front. But it was a, a brutal. I only stayed there for one year, and it was a brutal one year uh, mm. of my career because it was. Uh, uh, I had ninety hour work days. Yeah. Uh, work weeks. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Every single week, I worked ninety hours. Um, and remember, I lived in Astoria, Queens at the time, yeah. and I had to commute all the way from downtown uh, to Astoria after working 16 hours. Yeah. Uh, I, I tell people, you know, everybody seen the Saw movies wants to work in a restaurant. I'm like, bro, that's 16-hour days, bro. That's 16-hour days. <laughs> Plus you your, whatever your commute. <laughs> no food, no nothing. Yeah. Uh, you're on your own there. But I, I did learn a lot from David. I have to give him a lot of credit. Yeah. He, he was an incredible cook, I think, an incredible uh, – I've never seen anybody cook like him. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't very well organized, but he was he was an incredible cook. And what he could do with food was pure magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which red do you want to pour me while I ask you this next question? So I think it was during that time that when you went to work with uh, with David, it was like kind of cemented that you wanted to be in the private hospitality sector. You didn't want to go back to the corporate, correct? Exactly. At that point, I thought I'm, I'm not going back. I'm not a corporate guy, if you will. I yeah. have a, a lot of personality and thoughts to offer. I don't want to have 20 signatures before I can get mm-hmm. a changing glassware approved. Amen. Uh, and uh, I think the hospitality business, the restaurant hotel business is such a fast moving business. Uh, growing up in that business from uh, our family, I always knew that I mean, my grandfather always said this, if I can't sell that room tonight, it's lost. I'll never make up for the lost revenue. If I can't fill this seat tonight in the restaurant, I'll never make up for the. So there's a pressure every day to make sure you fill up to capacity, right? And um, that is a is a big learning curve, and that's a lot of pressure in 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 uh, in the field that you know makes you work around the clock. Yeah. So you do this, you know, you do the year, tough year there, and then where'd you end up? Uh, after that, I was I was approached by a British company, and they had two restaurants in London and, and one uh, in New York, and. Um, uh, it was called Nichols on 60th Street and uh, between Madison and Fifth. And I had never heard of the place uh, before. It had no real reputation, nothing. So initially I brushed it off and said, no, I'm not interested because I was building my resume with just like mm, what I thought was the top end of, of New York City hospitality. And when I uh, I thought about it for a moment afterwards, after I kind of brushed it off and I said, maybe maybe I'm stupid if I if I brush this off so quickly because first of all I'm I'm very tired, I'm exhausted after you know giving my all for one year uh, at Boulogne, and uh, but it's not that's not going to be my home. It's been a good learning curve, but I knew it was not going to be my home. Then I thought, you know what, if I think I'm as good as I think I am. 
I might as well work for something that is not doing well and see if mm. I can right. turn something around. Because if I, if I want to be the entrepreneur and the hospitality businessman that I want to be, then then I you know none of these other businesses were failing. They had great names behind them mm -hmm. and they had automatic business, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. uh, they didn't necessarily need me. This business needed somebody like me, so I felt okay. And I, I was very comfortable with the neighborhood because it was around the corner from the same region in the Four Seasons, so I knew the clientele very well. Gotcha. And that's why I took the position there as a director of restaurant operations. Yeah. And uh, they won some awards while you're there. Best Brunch, New York Magazine. We won. Well, we opened a second restaurant called 202 in the Chelsea okay. Market. This okay. is right when the Meatpacking District became hot and happening know, in yeah, New York City. When it, when, you know? it, when it wasn't grimy anymore. It, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Initially, I stayed away from the Meatpacking District. And then a few years into my New York residency here, I uh, became the hottest place on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and we happened to have a piece of the action there in, in Chelsea Market, right in the front on... on uh, on Ninth Avenue, and and um, uh, it was a very foreign concept uh, to New York City. It was a, a clothing and a retail furniture store with a restaurant in it. Wow. So you could sit at all the tables. You could buy all the tables that you're sitting at, all the chairs, et cetera, oh, wow. et cetera. So 202. Yeah. So very foreign concept, but uh, it became a, a big hit. Uh, yeah, won some some awards uh, for sure. Had a great chef, Annie Waite, uh, an English woman who became a dear friend of mine, and she oversaw all the four restaurants in terms of the culinary action. And uh, I had an incredible five years with that company. Truly, it was a very unusual thing for me to do. But uh, I, we we brought Nicole's up to uh, the place to be on the Upper East Side, and then opened up a second restaurant, two or two. So uh, I considered extremely successful there, and. And great fun, too, because I was able to really lean on my expertise and my, my connections and my friends that I made during my tenure in the hotels there. And I had to rely on all the concierges that I knew to send me business, right? Because yeah, yeah. that's how I was going to, going to uh, you know, gain a reputation there. So, it was a, yes, it was a lot of hard work. It was probably the same amount of hours as at Boulay, but I was doing it with a different purpose and also a very different outcome. Yeah, yeah. And so... Um, how did you come to work with Rouge Tomate? And I'm going to get into. Uh, I think this is your. Is this the estate before the? Uh... So this is the. Uh, let's let's do the the Cabernet first. Okay. Uh, let's start with the Samantha's Cabernet Sauvignon, which is uh, named after Samantha Rudd, who now owns the estate. Her father passed away. Uh, Mr. Rudd passed away in 2018, and um, she was uh, from the beginning, from when she was basically when she was born and, and uh, lived on the property. She was determined to take over the property one day, and, and she did. So Good she followed her. in her dad's footsteps, and she's continuing the, the family dream there. And, and we're uh, thanks to her, we're still uh, able to call ourselves a family business. Mm. This wine is named after her since 2008, and it's a pure Cabernet Sauvignon. So mm. this is, uh, talking about musical terms again, this is a solo artist. This is a solo performance, right? One person on stage here, in this case, it's Cabernet Sauvignon. Let's put the spotlight on it and really focus on what we can do here on the east side of Oakville with, with Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm. Beautiful nose, gorgeous. You can just tell it's so, um, the color's amazing, just black fruits. The beauty about those the wines from Oakville in general, I think, and especially on the east side of Oakville, we're, we're blessed with volcanic soil there with a great climate. So there's no problems getting fruit ripe in Oakville. That's for sure. Some people go overboard and sure. and, and work with overripe fruit. For us, it's the, the art of the master really to pick that fruit when it's at an optimal ripeness so we can retain that acidity in it. So you've got, you're working with a wine, yes, that is 
on the bigger and bolder side, but it has, I call it levity. Mm. It's light on its feet. It wants you, it invites you to drink another, uh, another glass after this. It doesn't bring you down, it lifts you up. So it's got energy. It's got vibrancy and it's, that's hard to find in the Cabernet Sauvignon. That's what we strive for. So, uh, hopefully you agree with with what I just described, but you know, it's always difficult. Everybody has their their own palate and their own preferences. But for me, this is what really uh, what really describes these wines. Well, I just I keep smelling. I'm like, it smells so good, and I was like, ah, I gotta taste it. Um, so yeah, so um, rouge tomate. Um, Rouge Tomat, yeah, Rouge Tomat came about. So uh, at Nicole Fari, after being there, the company was there for 10 years. I was there for five years. We lost our lease on 60th Street, came up. And that was the mm. old, the original Copacabana place, by mm. the way. That was a historic nightclub in New York City. And uh, the lease came up and the lease was uh, doubled. So we said, no, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, I actually started touring around uh, new takers for the space. That's really how it happened by coincidence. Oh, wow. And I met this gentleman from Belgium um, who had this incredible concept in mind and and uh, he became the winning bidder on the lease. And he said, I'll, I'll sign the lease, but I want Oscar to stay on here mm. and I want him to be part of the building. I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, we we, uh, we had several conversations and, and we clicked and uh, I believed in the concept that he wanted to showcase where Rouge Tomat was all about showcasing that you can actually eat healthy because... Remember what I said in the beginning, we weren't used to in Europe for people eating out so often, yeah, right? But right. Here, here people would eat out, you know, five, six, seven mm-hmm. times a week mm-hmm. uh, just to have it lunch or dinner. So we wanted to make sure that we could feed people in a very, very healthy way and not having to worry what's on the menu, what they could eat and what they could not eat. Anything you would pick on the menu would be healthy, but also tasty. So uh, yeah, it became, it was a, a big rebuild. Uh, the space needed a lot of work. Uh, it took us about a, a little bit over a year to uh, and, a, and a huge investment to kind of prep the space for the new concept and uh, and we opened up in October 2008 uh, with a uh, with a two floor restaurant 300 seat restaurant with about 300 people and employees uh, in the worst possible time right that's when everything crashed in October 2008 yeah. so yeah. couldn't be worse uh, timing wise. Uh, but we put together an incredible concept. However, we had to switch very, very quickly. Uh, by by January of 2009, we were uh, we had to say goodbye to 200 of those 300 people, oh. and and really streamline the the concept. Focus on one floor first, uh, and then kind of very slowly, depending on how it was going with the economy and expense accounts and you name it, uh, people eating out. Uh, and then see if we could bring it back to what we had initially intended. So that took us another year to get through that for sure. So again, a, a big, a big and humble experience. Yeah, you know, everybody always thinks it's easy to open a restaurant. Everybody always thinks oh, it's easy on. to make some money in a restaurant. And and you know we keep forgetting that ninety percent of the restaurants fail in their first year. Absolutely. So. <laughs> you guys just need to go watch the movie Michael Clayton. <laughs> uh, so the wine. Blue black fruits, blueberry, Ooh. pencil shavings, seriously, some serious dark chocolate, like like 90% cacao dark chocolate. And, um, but it's taut. It is light. It's the, you know, and I'm like, oh man, this wine, for me, for my pal, like it's awesome now. Right now, a steak would grow some, you know, burger would just, but like somewhere around eight to 10 years, this is going to soften. It's just going to be, it's just this sexy, voluptuous beauty, beauty without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, so you talk about the concept at Rouge Tomat being, you know, whatever was on the menu was going to be healthy. Um, 
first green certified Michelin star restaurant in the U.S.? Yes, correct. Yeah, we were blown away by that uh, accolade for sure. Uh, but also I have to say we pushed for it. It was the goal to really get some certification and make sure that people understood that this is legitimate. This is not just, you know, mm-hmm. coming some somebody coming up with a gimmicky uh, right. uh, concept. It's This is true educational uh completely uh thought through and 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 uh we even got you know uh the world health organization involved etc cetera, etc cetera, to really look at calorie count and mm. but also look at nutrition in a different way because we all consume so much food on a daily basis but a lot of those foods and calories we consume are empty calories they don't give us anything they don't give us energy they don't give us nutrition right so we were looking at a, putting a menu together that is very that's 100 percent nutritious so every calorie you eat actually adds something to your body and wow. makes you a better person and that was a very very unique i think it actually was ahead of its time in 2008 mm-hmm. 2009 mm-hmm. now it would be probably be doing a lot better uh, than uh, back in the day but because everybody's so health conscious but back then we we were pioneers Oh, you like the wine. I like the wine. And I like the fact that you're pioneers. I mean, that's, that's you know, they always say the first person to the door gets shot or punched in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, take it on a chin, you set the stage. But, um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, look, what, what, who is it? Who's, who's, is EMP now vegan? It is, yes. Yeah. Very yeah, I mean, brave. You set, you set, I would say, believe it or not, I mean, they were around. The seed was planted. Like, hey, yep. you know, Um and it's just funny, right, like, but you need a whole generation to exactly. shift, right? And you need people to think differently about food and nutrition, and we're finally getting somewhere. So it's, uh, it's pretty special. My my biggest frustration now is that people don't think that way with in terms of wine. Nobody thinks about what they drink when they drink wine. Well, that's not true. We got the whole natty wine mafia. That's like, well, that's, <laughs> it was uh, too like, I don't. Want let's know. not go there. I, I, and then we also have <laughs> the 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 fake. Uh, healthy for you wine uh, uh, rhymes with shit vine um, and talking about residual sugar in wines when that's not a thing unless it's a wine was specifically finished to be that way it's so misleading like you said like not a, like these marketing plays and ploys exactly that that confuse people you to know? me the most important part is and we don't think about it, is what you consume is what you put in your body and that has an effect on your body in the long term if you consume a lot of bad food you're going to get sick over time if you consume a lot of bad wine you will get sick mm-hmm. over over time and there is a lot of bad wine out there uh the more and more i discover that the more and more i take wines off my list that i do not drink anymore because of the way they're grown not mm-hmm. necessarily because of the way they're made but yeah. if if they're not grown if what I think is correct, and if they're full of pesticides and fungicides, say, yeah. it's going to end up. If they use Roundup in the vineyard, it will end up. It's in, in your, your body, wine. and we know it's in your and, body. And it's been proven to cause cancer. They've lost a lot of it. Just like it ends up in your body, and and exactly. And um, these are I'm, I'm can't wait to say them, but this is really beautiful. But yeah, I mean, I think it was a it was a brilliant said uh tell me what you eat and i'll tell you who you are like it's mm-hmm. a, you know and that's 100 percent true and know what you eat and know what, and therefore also know what you drink yeah um, and what did the let that food be the medicine medicine be thy food like literally that's the best way to stay healthy is eat whole nutritious yeah and, in, and in mod- anything you do in moderation I right that's if you keep it balanced in your life you'll be a very healthy and uh, you'll, you'll grow old yeah. right just like the vines that we tend to every day and that we yeah. that we steward it's uh want to make sure that and samantha rod is very 
committed to that family vision. I mean, this is a family business. And so the number one thing for a family business is to make sure that it's going to be there for the next generation. We need to make sure that we protect the land, that we serve it well, that we protect the vine so that her children uh, can then profit from it uh, in, in, in many years from now. So it's our task now to do that and set it up for uh, for success, right? And then it's up to the next generation to even do better than we did. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's to me, that sums up a, a family business. And I see that in my own family with the hotels too. They're being handed over from generation to generation, which is pretty special. So we do everything we can in the vineyard in, in Oakville and in Mount Vida to make sure that we do the right thing. That's why we shifted in 2017 to biodynamic farming. So actually the wines that you're drinking are mm. completely biodynamically farmed. Before that, we were simply organically farmed. Mm-hmm. That wasn't enough for us. Um, like I just said, we had we had two reasons why we wanted to shift the farming. First and foremost, being a family business, we have to protect the land. Secondly, we want to craft a very, very site-specific wine, mm-hmm. and a wine that only we can craft because we're sitting on this specific piece of land, mm-hmm. and the neighbor is sitting on a slightly different piece of land and should therefore have a slightly different wine, right? So it's purely having a, a, a kind of a laser focus on what we want to get out of the, the, the soil. And, and terroir is the big word that we all use, right? But to me, terroir is, yes, it's the site itself for sure, but it's also the people, the people that work the site, the people that uh, are involved in this. Every person on our property, and there's not many, we're all together, maybe about 30, 35 people, right? That includes the vineyard team and everything. Right. Everybody has their hands in each bottle of right. wine. Right. All of it. Right. And doesn't matter if you work in the office, it doesn't matter if you work in the vineyard. Everybody knows what goes on with these wines because we all help pick mm-hmm. them, we all help mm-hmm. sort them, we all help make the wines mm-hmm. and grow them. So it's a very it's a big dedication to that and making sure that we do everything we can to protect that land because the better we work the land, the healthier that vineyard is the better the yeast is that lives in the vineyard so we don't have to use commercial yeast in our in our, in our uh, workshop. We, we basically nurture the growing process along and then bring it into the workshop and then choose the right environment, the right vessel, and let this wine ferment. And that's it. I think less is more. That's always been my motto and mm-hmm. our motto there. And making sure that we are have a little bit of a hands-off approach and... The better we do that in the vineyard, the less we have to do in the workshop, mm-hmm. right? It's like a chef. You're handing the chef a, a beautiful ingredient. Keep the integrity of the ingredient. Don't manipulate mm-hmm. it. Don't smush it. Don't put other 20 other ingredients mm-hmm. in it. And keep it pure. I'm a purist. Yeah. Keep it pure. Yeah. <laughs> pure to me is best. And we've gone away from that in this world for way too long. And I hope we can get back to some kind of pure way of life and pure enjoyment. Of, yeah. Yeah. Of, and that in itself could be luxury. Right, just purity. Yeah, I love it's that luxury. It doesn't that. has nothing to do with money. Right. Oh, one hundred percent. Oh, that's awesome. So you're just your star just keeps rising in New York. So uh, how'd you uh, end up at Monkey Bar? <laughs> that was by coincidence. After three years putting Rustamat together, uh, rebuilding it uh, from the ground up, really. After it was Nicole's for ten years. Um, and after going through a, that you know big turmoil, financial turmoil mm-hmm. in eighteen uh, two thousand eight, sorry two thousand nine, yep. I was approached by uh, by Graydon Carter, uh, the great Graydon Carter, Vanity Fair, uh, and Jeff Klein, who owned the Monkey Bar, and and they wanted to uh, partner up with me, and, and ne- they needed an operational partner, somebody that could really, you know, they had this grand idea of bringing the Monkey Bar back. You know, Monkey Bar was built in nineteen thirteen, I believe, or something like that, and. Uh, a very iconic place in New York and 
and with Graydon's uh, knowledge of of, of uh, a Rolodex of cr- incredible, yeah. <laughs> well-known people uh, wanting to come to the Waverly Inn, his other restaurant, uh, building on that old fame uh, of New York City, um, he brought it back with with Jeff Klein, who is a hotelier and a great hospitality guy. Um, so I became their uh, man on the ground and, and uh, basically elevated their their service. They were hurting in the beginning. It became a, a big celebrity draw that restaurant, yeah, but yeah. it was known for very snobbish service and and not good food. So when I came in, it was my task to change all that. Yeah. Wow. A lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun. Especially, no pressure, but, you know, the people that, that would fill the dining room every night was just, it was the captains of industry. Any famous person you name was there at night. Yeah, I, uh, I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away at, um, on one level, I'm blown away. But as, you know, as if you've been listening to the podcast, if you guys listen to the whole podcast, you see it's, it's in his blood. Uh, and it, it just makes sense that you'd be the, a person to, who could um, provide these um, this pure hospitality and this luxurious experience to people. I mean, it's like you just, there's just, there's some people who uh, will never make it. Like if, if, the, if you were, you're playing like a, like the Chicago bulls of like hotels, you're like, you're, you're like on that Chicago bulls dynasty, like the <laughs> level of, 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 you know, right. uh, play, uh, you know, uh, just and right out the gate. Like there's people who, just, what are they just, they just come out the gate in their sport and they, they dominate and, What's so interesting about hospitality, though, is like, you know, we have Bobby Stuck. Bobby Stuck is another person who's just so hospitality driven, right? Like, like you guys, I'm just seeing like you just like really get it. Yeah, I get it. But also laser focus and knowing what understanding what hospitality is all about. And it's all about making other people feel great. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And that. Hospitality is not just a turnkey thing. It's not something that's the same for everybody. And I try to teach that to all my my staff back in the days too, in terms of service in a restaurant or hotel. You have to tailor it to that person's needs because everybody has a different uh, different expectation of hospitality, right? If you come in with your wife or your girlfriend, you have a different mm-hmm. uh, expectation as a business person coming in for a business meal, right? So your level of service, although you don't, there's a baseline of service of course but you tailor it to the situation Mm. and if you can anticipate what that person needs then you become a true hospitality person because you to me i always taught everybody else you need to be one step ahead Mm -hmm. you need to get into that person's mind by being around that person and mind you this all happens within 90 minutes because people stay for 90 minutes yeah. in, a, in a restaurant for right. instance, right? or one night in a hotel you have to get to know them from the first second mm-hmm. what makes them tick what are they sensitive for what 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 do they appreciate what do they not appreciate if you can very quickly if all your sensors are open and on you can pick up on that and if if you can play with that sensitivity then you can get to people's emotions and then once you get to people's emotions you have a connection and you can perform true hospitality for them, and that's that's an art. In a way, that's an art, and it's a way. In a way, to me, that's an art that's being lost because we've gone way too casual and way too fast about hospitality, and, and it became a big term, hospitality. Yeah. But it shouldn't even be a term. Right. It's, it's an art. Yeah. I, I, so many things get watered down, like you said. Like even when you're talking about terroir, I think uh, sense of place is a better word because, like you said. Um, everybody there is making the wine. You know, I had another guest, same thing, having a state down in Santa Barbara. Like they don't hire a harvest crew. They keep everybody year round. They, you know, 
same it's the same, 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 you know. The person who grow that those vines in, in those specific blocks wants to pick them too because mm-hmm. he know those are his or her babies, yep. right? And, and and you don't want to hand them off to somebody else who comes it's in like, who gets paid for the task and basically, you know, cuts corners and does it too fast and ruins your fruit that you just grow for nine months. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a it's a it's a it's a painstaking approach, but it, it makes such again, these are um, like we said, you know, luxury could be just a, the sweetest strawberry you've ever had. But uh, when even looking at the packaging on this, like the whole like like they're very simple, but they're elegant. Like everything's flawed. I mean, the labels timeless, are beautiful. They're timeless. Elegant, they're classic. You know, and like you said, a sense of place. They yeah. represent the soil. The color of this label is the color of the soil. So mm. it couldn't be more. Yeah, focus on the place than that. Oh, you know what? I've been doing this whole time. We should have had these this way towards the camera. There you guys go. <laughs> if you think after five seasons, I'd have it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's my first podcast. Yeah, I know, so don't, I know. don't blame it yeah, on no, me. I'm not blaming you. It's totally, it's totally, you know, if we had, you know, new studio, if we had the window, he probably would have signaled. He's probably over there laughing right now. He probably would have signaled you to turn him around. <laughs> <laughs> it's just I'm, I'm like they're so they're just so they were so mesmerizing I had to keep looking at them. I think maybe we're drinking too much. That's why. It is no, I'm drinking too much. You're just on your first class, <laughs> but you you were out in the field earlier. So I was running around New York City trying to uh, make sure we find some great accounts to uh, to nurture. These yeah, babies. these these well, and I I these I could see these are only you know these are going to be in the top restaurants. You know these are going to be they, that's to, the goal. You know we want to spread the love a little bit and make sure we're in the places where people appreciate them. Yeah, uh, that's what it, I really get that. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing for us is finding uh, finding people who appreciate the wines the w- same way we appreciate them. So, I mean, you're working with uh, uh, Graydon and Jeff, and they love you. You know, you, they they love you. So, uh, they introduced you to Richard Gear. They did, yeah. So, yeah. talk about. So, I mean, again, so yeah. you just you just keep. Like, where do you go from up? Oscar keeps going up. Well, we were, you know, with Green and Jeff, we were talking about possibly doing a hotel and, and this and that. And, and they knew hotels were my passion. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I came on board to help them uh, elevate the, their monkey bar concept and make sure we got to where we wanted to. But ultimately, my passion was in the hotels. And um, and so they were super kind uh, to introduce me to Richard. And Richard had a... A beautiful, very small, very high-end boutique hotel up in Bedford, about 45, 50 mm-hmm. minutes north of here. And, and um, I had never been there, but uh, obviously I had heard of Richard Gere, who, had, who hadn't back in the day. My mom definitely had. Yeah, American <laughs> Gigolo. <laughs> pretty, it was Pretty Woman for me. Oh, but. yeah, yeah. yeah no, 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 no. Uh, Officer and a Gentleman. Those exactly. Two, yeah, yeah, those two, yeah. So uh, I had an incredible first meeting with him, and we we aligned 100% about hospitality. We talked about generosity. We talked about what it means to be welcomed into somebody's home. There's a generous welcome. There's a generosity of of space and food and wine and 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 an environment that's warm and 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 top notch. So uh, he had a very specific hotel in mind uh, that was his kind of his his role model, if you mm-hmm. will, for his uh, Bedford Post in New York. And that was a hotel um, that was close to where my parents lived in the south of France. And uh, I knew it well. I had been there a couple of times, and I said, I know exactly what you mean by a place where 
you know, he wanted artists to come and the local community to gather and and share intellectual thoughts mm -hmm. and and and, and uh, present things and become a hub for for uh, creativity, if you will, and at the same time offer luxurious rooms, great dining experiences. We had a yoga loft, so there was meditation. He was very much involved mm -hmm. with that, so mm -hmm. we had a, a chance of meditation and. and and kind of check out and, and, and feel the purity of the property and, and, and really become one with yourself. So escape from the city, only spend 45, 50 minutes going up there and you're in a very different world. That mm -hmm. was the whole concept, right? So, uh, and it was a beautiful, it was already part of the Relais Chateau, which is a very small prestigious boutique hotel um, association. And and uh, we were part of that. So actually it was right up my alley. And uh, I accepted uh, full heartedly and said, "This is this will be a great next step." And uh, and it was a way for us to leave the city. I had two kids at the time, okay. uh, two young girls, and mm -hmm. New York City, you know, lack of space and this and that. So we had a chance to move up, uh, move up north, and and uh, spend some more time outside the city. Yeah. And then how long did you work uh, with Richard? I worked with him for uh, about two and a half years and uh, and we had an incredible time. Uh, he still is a, a very dear friend. We, we speak each other uh, often on the phone and um, it's, uh, it, you know, it was a, after a while it became maybe a little bit too small for me. We only had mm. uh, ten, eight rooms or ten rooms. Yeah. I don't remember. You need a little bit more action. Uh, I mean, your first job you had at least twenty rooms, right? So, I know, I know, yeah. I know. And yeah, <laughs> but these were ob obviously very luxurious yeah. rooms and, and very uh, you know high end getaways for people. So, um, but it was a, it was a dream job, and I, ha I had no intention of leaving, uh, other than the fact that that uh, I had a phone call from uh, somebody called uh, Leslie Rudd. I had never I had no idea who he was. He was somebody from the West Coast, and uh, he happened to have a vineyard, and he was the owner of Dina and Luca, which a lot of people in New York know. Yep. Um, and um, he basically convinced me that life on the West Coast is not too bad. <laughs> So, so I got to just before you talk, <laughs> how do you get your number? He just got your number. Like he, you know, he, well, people like that can get your number. I mean, he probably heard about people you, like yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. They find my number. I, I work with some famous people. Yeah. Now everybody knows after this podcast, <laughs> I've kept that quiet my whole <laughs> life. Uh, and uh, so people did talk about me in a certain right. group of people right, and, right. and my name must have come up come. there and, and, uh, and he found me. So he was looking for somebody to run his company on the, on the West coast in Napa Valley. And I had never been to Napa Valley. I have to wow. be quite frank. I had never been there. I'd had some so of So this wines. is what, this is 2000 and 2013. Wow. With all this experience, you've never been to Napa. Never been to Napa wow. Valley. Wow. No, I've had some of the wines and uh, yeah, of course, and uh, knew where it was. And I always had this vision in my mind of Napa Valley being the, the south of France of the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, weather wise, mm -hmm. food wise, mm -hmm. wine wise, all that. So, uh, but I always fantasized about it. I'd never been there. So uh, once we had some serious conversations, I, I did go and with my wife uh, to look at it to see if this could be a place where we could live. And uh, we definitely, I think, once we landed there and once we drove around, we thought it, it did feel like the south of France. The sun was out, you know. We, the moment you, you cross the Golden Gate Bridge when you leave San Francisco, yeah. the sun comes out, I the temperature know. goes up. I know. And you're like, wow, this is a whole different planet. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is quite beautiful. It is, it is like, like, uh, like Shangri-La. Like, like you go through all that fog or the bridge and like, yeah. like oh, it just opens up. Oh, it's one of those aha moments, you know, it's right there in front of you. And you're like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So it was an easy decision, although it wasn't a super easy decision. We had a hard time making the decision because all our family, but my wife is from Europe as well, is in Europe. So we thought the only thing that is tough for us is to remove ourselves even further from yeah. the family. Yeah, adds another you know? six hours onto any flight or six you have to lay over. You know, yep. No, another three hours time difference. Yep. It's not easy to communicate because yep. you're on opposite schedules yep. now. So yep. we did think about that for a, a moment. But all our parents said too and all our families too, you guys have to follow your dreams and do it. And, and if you know if this is a train that comes by and you don't hop on it, you're going to be regretful for the rest of your life. So do it, try it, and see what happens. So... We did, and it's been almost 10 years now. So. <laughs> so, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is that um, a lot of what you do, I, I get like you develop leaders, leaders, you help set, um, you create culture. Um, but you're, 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 it seems like you have some superior business acumen is what I would say. Like, I think um, a lot of people, like I said, people, you have a great chef credible chef restaurant closed because they don't have any business acumen like mm -hmm. from from going through your bio and and, and conversation like like there is this in addition to being able to create an environment where where luxury lives but you're like you're you're a badass business dude it seems like <laughs> try to like, try like on to. a sneak tip like, like, <laughs> i know how to work a p l yeah, statement. Yeah, yes yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's people like p l what's a p l it's profit and loss boys and girls yes. <laughs> hopefully more profit yeah, than yeah, loss yeah, exactly yeah and you, you want more p than l <laughs> <laughs> um so what was it like full-on i mean i know you've done food and beverage but now like kind of what do you do as um so it says a portfolio business so do they is what else is involved in with uh, the rudd portfolio so businesses? at the time when i started the and business, i'm gonna get into this uh you know you get in the next bottle it's all, it's all yours i'm uh, yeah we don't I'll have be right i'll be right we're, behind we're, you. we ain't got much time left we just <laughs> conversations flowing okay well <laughs> and the wine is flowing too. exactly so uh, when I took the job, um, uh, the first question I asked uh, Leslie Rudd, I said, why me? Why did you get to me? And uh, he said, I I've been looking at what you've been doing, and I need somebody who can run my business with a very different mindset. I don't want somebody mm -hmm. who has a wine uh, exactly. background and mm -hmm. winemaking mm -hmm. mindset. And, and, and that resonated with me because I had several friends here in New York that had very successful businesses, and they always hired people that were not related to the business at all. Yep. And so it seemed to be a very smart uh, decision on his end, and, and I accepted the challenge. But I did tell him, I said, listen, yes, I, I know the business side of things, but I don't know your specific business. Uh, and to answer your question very quickly, it was, it's, it was two winery estates, a restaurant, the farm, uh, two grocery stores. We had Dean Luca and Oakville Grocery, and we had a distillery as well. So it was a, a large Wow, okay, large yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 businesses. yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, this day that does that the company doesn't exist the way it is now mr Rudd passed away and some of these things were, were split off and sold off okay. but um that's how it started back in 2013 but i told him i said you know what once i take on this challenge it's going to be a big challenge for me and and uh, but i have the bandwidth to do it i just need a little bit of time to really know the details about these businesses so i i want to do in a fast track what i've done with my own family and my own uh background is that knowing every piece of the business. So uh, I happened to move there in August uh, of 13, so it was perfect timing. I said, I would, like to, harvest, I yeah. would like to work Harvest mm. as, an, as basically as an intern. I don't want a cell phone. I don't want a laptop. I don't want an office. I don't want anything. I just want to be with our teams and our people and really work from the ground and see how we make our product. What is so different and unique about us? 
Uh, how can we make it even more different and unique? How can we build a workshop that makes more sense for a property, et cetera, et cetera. So I basically spent three months um, working uh, as a harvest intern, if mm -hmm. you will, um, to get to know our teams. And he agreed with it. He said, okay. He said, Oscar, the first three months are on me. I don't want to see you. don't want to talk to you. You do your thing, but you come back to me with a full report. <laughs> so... The pressure was on, but I had an incredible time. I, I worked three months straight, seven days a week, you know, uh, nearly 16, 17 hours a day again, but I didn't feel like it because it was such a new concept to me and a new learning curve that I wanted to take it all on. And I visited many other wineries in the meantime. I wanted to see what the competitive set looked like in Napa Valley. I tasted a ton of wines. I just wanted to prep myself for what was coming uh, after that. So uh, that was a... B in a way, that was a luxury. That was a luxury for the, the, the family to allow me to spend a few months basically scouting out mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the play field, right? And, and, and checking out our businesses and seeing, then making up our minds and making an educated decision on what would need to change to make these businesses even more successful, run more efficient, change. Uh, he's, he was always on the edge of, of, of you know, pushing for change and pushing for... Um, new things and how can we discover new things and how can we be on the cutting edge of, of our industry right so that that creates i mean that creates a lot of pressure but it also uh opens up a lot a lot of opportunity and and he uh one of the things that's in front of my when i sit at my desk and i look at the wall and i have a picture there and and uh, it says it says a quote that he always said to me and especially said it to me when i when i was thinking about accepting his job and the last thing he asked me said oscar what would you do if you wouldn't be afraid? Hmm. And I looked at him and I said, if I wouldn't be afraid, I would take this job tomorrow. He said, well, then you go home and think about that, but that's what you do. So that always stuck with me. And every time I, ha I work with our teams now and, and there's difficult times or there's decision-making times, and I always look at them because a lot of people are are hindered by fear, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you don't want to do this because, you, because you're thinking about the after shock or mm -hmm. after effect and what are the consequences and what if we wouldn't have that filter? Would we follow our passion and our heart even more and would we just do the things that we really want to do? Uh, I think we do. So to me, that, that quote has become, a, you know, for the last eight, nine, ten years has become something that is very special to me. What would you do if you wouldn't be afraid? Mm -hmm. I love that. And it's true. I, I have a friend who uh, she has a song called "What, what uh, If I Were Brave," and the lyrics are about what you know what you would do with your life if you were brave. If you had, if you had the courage to to do what you want right. to do. Exactly. I, I love that, and I love that. I love that. Um, here you are. You know, there's this like there's this like food and wine empire, and that's the interview question. What would you do? You know, if you know if you didn't fear. I, I mean, that's like the people you want to work for, not like the. Uh, um, Name a time when you had a difficult challenge and how did you overcome how did you solve it? That? Right, yeah, exactly. you know, bullshit questions. You get these interviews. <laughs> no, he definitely opened my mind to uh, to a very different way of thinking, and I, I uh, I've learned a lot from him, and and uh, and I'm, I'm really very thrilled to have his daughter now in the company, and and really kind of continue that same pushing for change, pushing for not change but evolution and, and evolution. Um, pushing our boundaries constantly and, and constantly thinking, okay, what can we do better? And it's, you never, you know, you think you put out a great vintage and, and everybody loves it. It's very well received. The next year we have to do better. We yeah. can't just sit there and think, oh, we, we got this down. We can do this. And no, every year is a new year. Every year is a different year. 
the, the, the most humbling thing of what we do, and that's what, what I like about it, is that we work with Mother Nature. So you, you have to be humble. It's not a machine. It's not a product that is made and we can, yeah, if you want 100 more cases, oh, let's print 100 or bottle 100 more cases. You can't do that. This is what the land is going to give us. This is what we, we think is the best expression of it. And if it's done, it's done. We have to wait till next year. Yeah. No, it's, it, I, this will be like episode 80. I've done so. I'm like, I'm trying to forget who said it, but someone said, basically, it's like, you know, when you're making wine, you know, it's a partnership with Mother Nature and she's in control. She's she's driving the bus. <laughs> right, exactly. You're just sitting, bus, exactly. You're sitting in the seat. Yeah. Like, Where are we going exactly. today? <laughs> they opened the window for yeah, the fresh exactly. air. <laughs> you know, it's like that bus. That, you know, if you see the American with the bus driver with the cigarette, get on the bus. Like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I have in my glass the 2018 estate, and it says red wine. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Talk. What's in this? So the 2018 Red Oakville Estate Red is that's the one with the brown label we've been yes, referring with to the, the soils, whole time. right? Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. that is really the wine that that we set out to do from the beginning. This is how we want to express the site. So we don't want to be bound with one grape varietal. If we would call the Cabernet Sauvignon, we'd have to be, you know, yep. 75% so, Cabernet mm-hmm, Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. We don't want any rules and regulations to to bind us and to bring it to keep us down. We want to make sure that we can blindly pick every year when we do our first blending sessions, what is the very best expression of this land and this vintage? Whether that's Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, each year there's a different lens in how we see the property, right? Mm-hmm. Through different varietals, not different, I mean, we only grow four varietals, but different composition of those varietals. So this year, 2018, which happens to be one of the most stellar vintages in Napa, I'm sure you've heard yep. that, in mm-hmm. Napa Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably the vintage of the decade, as most people call it. This is a pure, this is, uh, talking about purity. This is purity. This is, for us, really, we thought in 18, when we tasted the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Cabernet Franc, the Malbec, the Petit Vidot, we thought, you know what? Normally, we add Petit Vidot Malbec. We didn't do that in 18 oh, because wow. we felt the Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet um, Franc were so pure on their own, we would only dilute all that quality by adding something to it. So this is the first year in our 26 year existence that we did not add any other grape varietal but, but those two. Now, that might change with the next vintage. You don't know that, right? We've never done that before. We might never do it again. But that's why this is a red wine. This is a pure, this is a rud wine, not a red wine. It's a rud wine. wine. I love so, that. Right? Yeah. So we have to make sure that this is what our identity, this is our DNA, this is what we are known for. This is how people can recognize us. And it should, it should never be by a grape varietal, I think. When I moved to the United States now 25 years ago, we talked about that in depth the last two hours. We... we um, I never knew what grape varietal was in certain wines. I never knew Sancerre right. was, a, was Sauvignon a, Blanc. Yeah, I never knew mm-hmm. Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot were grown in Bordeaux. I never. Right. We knew the wine by the style of the mm-hmm. region and the style mm-hmm. of the house. Mm-hmm. We didn't know the grape varietal mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. So these wines, I hope, would transcend the grape varietal itself and have something more to offer, have a place to offer. Before this wine is a bottle of wine, it's a place. And that's what we want to capture in the bottle. Mm. So my mind, because where my mind went when you said that, I was like, so 
Is there some bottles of Petit Verdot in Malbec somewhere that, uh, that I could uh, taste at some point? <laughs> no, there is not. But uh, <laughs> we did make Petit Verdot Malbec. Uh, that ended up in some of our second label wine in our okay. crossroads, and everything else was sold off. We have a yeah, I figured you, yeah, you sell off sold yeah, off yeah, as yeah, bulk yeah, wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, somebody else can have fun with it, and sure, yep. I'm sure there's somewhere. Well, in I'm sure it's somewhere there's a kick-ass Malbec that like mm. you're like, why is this so good? And it's only twenty five bucks because it's red estate fruit. You know? <laughs> they won't be able to tell you that <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they got an airtight NDA. Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Because actually, uh, I, I like you said, I love what you said about the the. It's a place, and it's a red wine more than because I don't. I'm not like Cabernet. So as a varietal, it's not my favorite varietal. But these wines are delicious. I just like delicious wines. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And these are both just. Mwah, they're just so so just. Thank you. I see Succulent. them as my own kids, yeah. and and you know they're they're part of the family, and and we treasure them, and and we nurture them along, and and then it's incredible for us to share them with people like you who are passionate about it and and want to talk about it, and then, you know we've missed it the last two years when nobody could get together. I know. Yes, families were getting together and they were drinking wine, so that's a good thing. But we as producers and as growers were not able to share these wines in the fashion that we yep. would normally do. Right, it's a different because you ship a bottle. So that's another thing too. You ship a bottle and you do a Zoom tasting. It's two different bottles. It's not we're tasting this bottle right now and if it's a little off you know it's a little off you know what i mean like it's it's different like it's not, so different i do not do zoom tasting yeah. so Good no, for you, it's in person or not yeah. at all <laughs> uh, but you no know, wine is meant to be shared we think yeah. our wine is meant to be shared and you know these wines i would never drink them alone yeah you, you have great company with you you you'll have these these wines invite great conversation yeah. and perhaps great contemplation too. So I think th- this is much more than just a beverage. Yeah, I see our wines as as truly as food. You know, we grow it the same way uh, a great chef would grow the, the vegetables in their garden and pick it when it's ripe. We grow our our our, uh, our um, grapes that way and and very meticulously you know make make juice out of it and then transform it into wine. So it's I see it as food. Yeah, one hundred percent. So. Um, we're coming up after a wonderful long conversation that's just flowed so well. Um, what are you most excited about at the future of Red uh, Red Estate? I think we're just at the beginning. You know, looking at my background, uh, coming from Europe, where wineries have been in the same families for hundreds of years. We're only twenty six years old, young, I should say. That's very. We're, young. we're just yeah, a baby. Yeah. It's so big. I think this it's is not just even the don't even qualify as old vines. You know what I mean? Like, no, exactly. Yeah. Vines are twenty six <laughs> yeah, years exactly. old. What's that? You know, yeah. that's it's a beginner's wine. No. Imagine uh, what uh, Leslie's. Uh, uh, grandchildren the wines are gonna, that they're going to be able to produce oh I'm jealous of those guys oh, me too. Those, two, those two boys are running around now have no idea what they're running around <laughs> and I think that for them it's going to be the sky is the limit so it's uh, we're doing all the work now uh, and even my my own kids, my wife, we're involved. You know, my kids will come and help pick, and mm-hmm. my 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 children babysit Samantha's children, and so it's it's a true family affair, and we all work there together and and help each other and and prepare it, do the best thing we can to make sure that we set this up for the next generation. Yeah, Oscar, holy shit, man! Thanks so much for coming in. Um, I just uh, just great to sit down, meet you. You know, uh, shout out to Adrian Chalk. You know, he came on. He had such a fun time. He's literally, he's like, 
I know some people you have to interview. And like you like you like you like Well, thank you, Adrian. Yeah. Nah, man, this was this was like this was so 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 good. So so good. Awesome. Um so tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing at Red Estate, um, you know, uh, website, you know, socials, whatever. Yeah, rudwines.com. We're in the heart of Napa Valley in Oakville on the east side of Oakville. Uh, and we have a great restaurant called Press, which is in St. Lena. Uh probably about the largest Napa Valley wine collection in the world. I know. We, you know, so. listen, we could have talked, like, we didn't even, you know, I had Amanda McCrossin on, you know. And she, oh, yeah, she, she was like she my first season. I us. know, I know. Like, I, like, I, like, we, had, we just had, a, I like, like, this, this. Wow. We, yeah. Yeah. It's a small world. It is, yeah, it totally, it is a small world. And, and, uh, yeah, press. It's the largest collection of like event, and they have back vintages. We're, like, we're going back to the 1950s. So yeah, I got, love that. And she yeah. said, no, she like you got like Stony Hill shards from the and like these wines. Let's just end all the bullshit. Napa Valley wines are age worthy whites and reds. Let's just let me just let you guys know. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, we'll make sure we'll put that in the show notes. Um, for all you listeners, don't forget to check out the show notes. That's where we put uh, the wine we drank, uh, links to cool stuff, links to uh, to uh, where you can find Oscar and, and his team. And until the next time, here's to the Mavericks, the philosophers, the deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. Peace. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.